Welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world using lessons and skills that they first learned from selling Cutco knives with Vector Marketing Corporation. This podcast was created to share inspiring stories from Cutco's most prominent alumni and current leaders. On this show, you'll meet successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. All our guests will have two things in common. One, they're all changing lives today through their work and their influence. And two, they all started out selling Cutco knives when they were younger. The lessons of the Cutco Vector experience are numerous, are compelling, and are real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. This is Dan Cassetta. Welcome to this milestone episode number 300 of Changing Lives, Selling Knives. When I started this podcast in 2019, the first two Cutco Vector alumni guests that I sought out were Hal Elrod and John Berghoff. Their two original episodes are still the two most popular episodes in the history of the podcast. And both of these guys have participated in other great episodes since that time. When it came time to choose who to feature for this milestone 300th episode, I knew there would be no better idea than to get together with Hal and John for this special conversation. Both of these guys are changing lives in such profound ways throughout the world. As the author of the Miracle Morning book series and the Miracle Equation, Hal Elrod has influenced millions of followers around the world to live better lives. As the founder and CEO of Exchange, John Berghoff is having an exponential impact on the world by teaching leaders a new way to guide their teams and facilitate group interactions. Today, we get together to talk about our shared experience in Cutco Vector over 20 years ago, the dynamic relationship that Hal and John have built, some of their most valuable life lessons, and how you can leverage their insights to experience success and fulfillment in the year ahead. Let's get right to it with my good friends, Hal Elrod and John Berghoff. Hal, John, thanks so much for being a part of this. Dan, grateful to be here, man. Thanks for having us. Dan, it's great to be here. Hal, it's great to see you, buddy. This is cool. (laughs) Definitely great to see both of your faces. I appreciate it. Let's start by hearing what's happening in your world right now. Hal, why don't you take that first? Yeah. What, so we're at the start of 2022. I just finished a six-month sabbatical. Midway through last year, my wife and I uh, went with our kids. We bought a 30-acre ranch out here in Texas and uh, went from being city folk for our entire lives to living in the country. And uh, it's funny, I joke a lot. It reminds me, our life reminds me of those 80s movies where the city folk moved out to the farm and blundered their way through everything. That's kind of what we're doing. And uh, yeah, coming up the sabbatical, uh, I was going to extend it because I felt like I did it wrong. And I just going into the new year, I was setting my goals and I decided that I want to contribute to the world in the way that I have been. And, and, and I want to get back to that and really get back to my mission and my purpose. And a big part of it was 
I had thought that I needed to spend all my time with my kids to be a great dad because I had had cancer for three years and I didn't see them as much as I wanted to. But spending those six months with them, I realized that the best gift I feel like that I can give to my kids is how I live my life. And so I really want to live my purpose. I want to contribute in every way that I can. I want to, I want to play big and, uh, and make the biggest impact that I can. I feel like that more than anything will impact my kids. And so uh, we're back on the Miracle Morning mission, which is to elevate the consciousness of humanity one morning at a time. And so, yeah, so just supporting uh, the Miracle Morning community and, and trying to reach more and more people and share the impact that a morning routine uh, can have in their life. Excellent. Well, you do great work, Hal, for sure. John, what's happening for you? Well, right before you push record, you and, you and Hal got to see the very uh, present moment, real time. I got my seven-year-old son, Kaizen, who's right by my side right now. I'm sure he'll be popping in to say hi. We're home this week, quarantining us and I think the rest of the living universe right now. <laughs> uh, like, Seems uh, like it. Yeah, I, I came down with COVID and yeah, it's a, we're navigating through and uh, how I, I deeply respect. It's fun to hear you talk about your sabbatical because I think it's really admirable knowing everything that could pull you in one direction for you to listen so deeply to some inner uh, knowing. I, I admire that about you, Hal, and it's, uh, it's fun to hear you share that story and it's been fun to watch you and Ursula, Sophie Halston, you know, build your life on the new ranch, the, the Elrod, Ranch Elrod. Is there a name for the ranch, by the way? We we don't. We, we've called it the Hush Ranch because that's our initials, Hal, Ursula, <laughs> Sophia, Halston, but it's not like official. The sound of that. All right. Yeah. I like it. Uh, the Hush Ranch. That's yeah. cool. That's cool. Yeah. In my universe, slightly different story, different scenario. Uh, I know you guys are aware over the last couple of years, Mara, my wife of 10 years and I chose to separate. And, you know, it's been, uh, it, it's been an extraordinary, painful, but also in odd ways, important and beautiful learning journey for her and I. And, you know, our 10 years together were absolutely the 10 most elevating, meaningful years of my life. I think she'd say the same. And, a different outcome, but asking the same questions as you, Hal, is like, what feels true? What feels really aligned? And we got to this place where we're still loving parents. That never changes. And closer together, probably more peaceful now than we ever have been. And right back here as a parent, uh, navigating this crazy world. And in our business, uh, as you guys have been pretty close to, you know, trying to figure out how to serve at a time where we seem to have an ability to serve a lot of people who are serving others through our facilitation and leadership training. So it's been a wild ride and I wouldn't trade it for anything. It's been very easy over the last few years to feel like things are happening to me. And as one of my mentors has helped me to remember that uh, maybe it's all happening for me. And uh, so here we are today. Yeah. Well, it's great to hear, John, that you could find some peace and some alignment in a challenging personal circumstance. And then, of course, all the while, as I said uh, earlier, you're having an exponential impact on the world because you are teaching leaders how to, how to lead, how to be better at what they do. And so yeah. not only are you impacting them, but impacting all of their tribes. So it's cool to see. Yeah. You got you guys are 
two of the people I admire most in the world, not just from the direct experience we had many years ago, but obviously more so from how you've continued to uh, influence the world and elevate your games and just how much you care about making a difference and, and changing lives. We go way back. Our relationship, the three of us, goes back over 20 years. For anybody who may not know the history here, uh, Hal started in the Cutco business in Fresno, California uh, in 1998. He set the Western region fast start record when he started with over $15,000 in sales his first 10 days. John came onto the scene in San Jose in my sales office the next year in 1999 and really exploded into incredible success in the year 2000. John was the Silver Cup winner as the number one overall rep in the company in 2000 and did it while going to school. And so eventually, I know, Hal, you moved to San Jose in the fall of 2000 so that uh, you could work more closely with John. We all worked together for a while at that point. What led you into wanting to move to San Jose that fall? Yeah, the short answer and a long answer. I'll give the medium answer. I'll but take a, over. a year prior, uh, I had been in a car accident. I was uh, driving home from actually a Cutco meeting. I gave a speech at a Cutco conference. Driving home that night, my car was hit head-on by a drunk driver at 80 miles an hour. And uh, another car dr drove into my driver's side door at 80 miles an hour. And that night, I was found dead at the scene. I broke 11 bones. I bled to death. My heart stopped for six minutes. And I came out of this experience out of a coma six days later had to learn to walk again, all of these things, and really examined like, what was my life going to be about? And a buddy of mine said, Hal, you, you know, I, I got a better gig than the knife selling gig. You should, you, it's tech sales. You should move out here to the Bay Area and, and sell technology. And uh, you know, it's for one of Cisco's partners. And so I went out, got a job. I was so excited, you know, branching out of this Cutco world. I thought it was the right thing to do. And I was there for four days. And Every single day, it was, it was like if you broke up with your girlfriend and then you realized you made a huge mistake and she was the one and, and you were about to let her get away. And so those four days, I realized I left the best thing that ever happened to me. What, what am I doing? And so to the disappointment of this company, like four days in, I'm like, guys, I, I know I told you I was going to come in and shake things up. I got to go back to Cutco. And uh, a few weeks later, I went to the conference in Vegas and the short answer, by the way, to how I ended up in San Jose was, was a drunken night in Vegas where <laughs> John Berghoff and I were having a few beers, I think. And, uh, and he says, man, you know, where are you living now? I said, I'm trying to figure out where I'm going to move. And he said, you should move. Dude, I live in my parents' pool house and uh, we got, you know, you, there's room. You should come move in with me. And uh, it, it was crazy because John and I had met like twice, you know, but that night we bonded. A week later, I loaded up my car, drove out to San Jose, showed up at his parents' guest house, ready to move in. And the funniest part was I walk into the guest house and there's one queen-size bed in the guest house. <laughs> and I said, John, where am I supposed to sleep? And he goes, said something like, oh, gosh, you know, I, I didn't really think about it, but I'm secure if you are and you can just sleep in the bed with me. It's a big enough bed. And that began the next four months of, uh, of bunking literally in the same bed as, uh, as John. So that, that's how I ended up in San Jose, sharing a, sharing a bed with a man I had met three times before. <laughs> wow. Now, you guys, I know you both enrolled at De Anza College that fall. You were 
you ended up at the end of the fall being the number one and number two college All-Americans in the company for the fall campaign. You were both over $80,000 in sales that fall campaign. What caused such synergy that led to these results besides the obvious uh, sleeping in the same bed? Yeah, I mean, that, that osmosis. John, you want to take this one? Well, before you answer, <laughs> I don't remember everything about these origins, but I do remember <laughs> that whatever I said was certainly a gesture comment, a flippant, <laughs> had, there's no way I really wanted you to come live with me. The funny thing is, you look back, Hal, and you and I, we lived together for four years. It sounds like we'll talk about that right now. Four months. It, or four months. Yeah. Felt like four years. <laughs> yeah, it it was four months of four years. Yeah. And then, uh, but, but what was cool is like 15 years later, we came back together and built a business that for six years was extraordinary. Yeah. And what's funny is the way that we ran that business for those years was basically about as flippant <laughs> as the way we met is, you know, yeah. Yeah. It's really funny to think about how that began. Hal, you you start off. Where was the synergy? Where, unless you want me to to kick um, that out. Yeah, you know, I think it was John and I, we just, we, our personalities, our sense of humor is clicked. Like we were just both really goofy and silly. I mean, we used to wake up to Yanni every morning to this Yanni. John probably knows the name of the song. It's called, um, it's called In the Morning Light. In the Morning Light. We woke up to that. Almost every night after we were done making our calls for Cutco, we would turn on music like Michael Jackson and we would literally dance together in weird, funny ways. <laughs> we lived off lean cuisines and Ben and Jerry's ice cream and we thought it was healthy because the lean cuisine, anyway. So it was just this, we had this really fun, <laughs> funny uh, synergy personally. And then I think we honestly got caught up in the friendly competition. And I will remember, Dan, there's a defining moment and uh, I always, when I tell this story, I always say, Dan's so smart. I, I think he was faking that. Well, uh, let me explain the, the scenario. So I was thinking about going big. I had sold $20,000 in that part, early part of the year when I was recovering from my car accident. I got rides to appointments from fellow sales reps. I was at $20,000 with four months left in the year. And I had this crazy thought. I thought, what if I sold $80,000 this fall, which is probably more than double what I'd ever done before. And I, I hit $100,000. I won one of those swords that you know is behind your, your left shoulder. And I thought that would be, that's like a miracle, right? And I remember I was in the office and I overheard you on the phone. I think it was supposedly with, uh, with our region manager back then, Brad Britton. And, uh, and I was listening from outside your office and you said, you know, honestly, if anybody's going to give John a run for his money this fall, I think Hal, I, I think Hal really has a shot of beating him. Now, when I tell that story, I tell people, I said, Dan is so smart. There was probably no one else on the other end of the phone. <laughs> but Dan knew that I was standing outside the door. That, that's my guess. But either way, honestly, Dan, you know, that conversation, the thought I had of doing that, it all of a sudden fueled a deeper belief that, hey, if Dan thinks I can do it, maybe he's right. Maybe I can do it. And then that was it. John and I were just caught up and, you know, we were friends. We had a great time together. But we were trying to beat each other week after week after week, push period after push period. And so that was it. It was, it was a friendly relationship and then friendly competition on top of that. And then your leadership that made all the difference. Uh, that's cool. I like it, Hal. John, what, what do you want to chime in? Well, let me begin also by pandering to your leadership, Dan. That's <laughs> <laughs> <was> good, huh? <laughs> No, you end with that, John. You end with the pandering. 
Well, I thought I'd pick up right where you left. All right, all right. Show I was listening. <laughs> uh, it's uh, playfully, it's really true, though. Yeah, I, I remember my first week as a rep, you know, before you and I met Hal, that Dan, you, you, I think one of your tools in your toolkit was to breathe life into others through believing in people bef- more than they believed in themselves or before they did. And uh, so, you know, all the kidding aside, I think, you know, Hal and I are both uh, beneficiaries of that. So thank you. We did have a lot of fun. You remember how I liked to make phone calls at the office. I think this was before cell phones were a thing, right? So you had to be at like a home where there was a yeah, landline. Yeah. I would always hide the portable phone somewhere as far away as I could. And then I'd walk out and you would tell me later how long it took you to find yeah. it. Like that was we, some dir- dirty competitive tactics right dirty, there. Dirty competitive <laughs> Hardball, hardball tactics right there. Hiding the portable phone in the uh, top of the the bathroom. The bathroom, that's where it was, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I I found the place where it was far enough away that when you push the thing, it couldn't reach it to beep. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I think one of the things that I have appreciated about that time in our life is there's, there's very little logic to the idea that two competitive salespeople could decide to move in together. And if you just said this and I missed it, forgive me, but we we started selling to customers in the same neighborhoods, (laughs) like literally. And I think it would be so easy. It could have been, and I don't know why we didn't feel this way. Maybe we did and I forgot for us to have a scarcity mindset. Yeah. A, and for whatever reason, we had an abundance mentality. And I think there's looking way, way back, you know, there's something interesting to glean just from the idea that the last thing I think people would think is that whoever was going to be number one in the nation amongst thousands of salespeople, that the number two person could literally move into town and sell (laughs) in the exact same streets and neighborhoods and I think it just speaks volumes for all of us to check our beliefs around uh, scarcity and abundance. That's that's one just thing that I've thought about from time to time that I think is yeah. just kind of cool that that somehow didn't get in the way. Yeah, that's interesting, especially for you. I would have, if I were you, I would have probably been real upset. Go, dude, this Joker comes into town. I'm working on being the number one rep in the company and breaking the records, and uh, and Hal's coming in and taking half my customers. So yeah. No, so, so really, that was probably, a compliment to yourself. I appreciate that. Well, I probably did feel that way. And this is my way of rewriting history to make myself look <laughs> profound. Yeah. I nice. I like that. <laughs> Good. Well, John, what, what, what do you feel is the best thing you learned from Hal back in those days? Yeah. First of all, I'd never met a young man with the kinds of choreographed dance moves that Hal Elrod brought into <laughs> that w- one bedroom studio. Now, that's not a joke either. Hal had this ability to detach himself emotionally from the guaranteed ups and downs of of the risks that we take as entrepreneurs and putting ourselves in a place to be rejected. You know, rejection, especially in a sales role where we sometimes are positioning ourselves for the ego to be attacked. If we're sitting there making phone calls more times in 15 minutes, 30 minutes. And some people are used to in the course of a month or a year or a career, even depending on what they do. And Hal, you had this ability to gamify. You had this ability and you had ways of talking about it. Maybe you'll elaborate or correct this, but you would commit yourself to the process 
and you found a way to just observe the emotions to come and go. It was like an act of mindfulness. I don't think we called it that, but I watched you say, I'm going to make 20 calls and that's all I'm committed to. And do that so consistently that over a period of time, you, you somehow were able to just turn it into a game, which is so much easier to say than it is to do, I think. And so that, I got to see that firsthand and, and that inspired me to try and up my ability to navigate the inner emotions of self-imposed challenges when we try and do big things. So that's one thing that stands out for me. Yeah. You make it fun, Hal. And I think about what life is about. It's about enjoying the journey, right? Yeah. And you, uh, even when you went through some of your darkest times, like when you went through the, the period with cancer, right? And you would tell us that your mindset was you were going to be the most grateful, happy, positive person dealing with that, that exists, right? Yeah. And I, I think just looking all the way back to those early days for you guys, that was something that, that we started to see was that it was just important to enjoy the process every single day. Yeah. Well, and for anybody listening to really bring John, what you just said and Dan, what you said, and, and to kind of bring it as a lesson for everybody that we can all embody. That's one of the biggest things I've learned through my car accident, through my cancer and all the other challenges in life is that most of us believe that if good things happen, then I feel good. And if bad things happen, then I feel bad. We, we really allow our circumstances or events or what other people do or say to affect how we feel. So good things happen, I feel good. Bad things happen, I feel bad. And what I learned during my car accident was in the midst of the most challenging circumstance in my life, for all of us, in the most challenging circumstance of our life, we can choose to be the happiest and most grateful we've ever been or most peaceful or you know, you choose the adjective, right? But we can choose how we experience the challenge is the adversity, right? The last couple of years have been really challenging for a lot of people. You can either experience those challenges with depression and anxiety and fear or with courage and grace and love. The challenges are the same, but how you show up ultimately uh, you know, is up to you. So yeah, for everybody, I think that, that we can apply now in our lives and in the world uh, as much as any time. Yeah, exactly. Well said. That was great. What do you feel, Hal? Uh you learned from John in those early days? Not much. Next question. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> Wait, I got oh. a sound effect for that. Hold on. There we go. I Thank love you. it. I thought it was going to be wah wah. Uh, uh, so, I probably got There you go. There you go. That was it. That was the right one. <laughs> so from John, it was thinking big, I guess, in its simplest form, but thinking big, thinking outside the box, both on macro and micro. And here's what I mean. So when John, uh, I actually met John, this is a kind of a funny story. I, you know, I didn't like John when I first met him just because of my ego. I, I met John at a conference that he broke the record I had set the year before. So it was very awkward. You know, I'm like, hey, John, congratulations. You know, right? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good job. Yeah. But the point is, John went out and he didn't just beat records a little bit, <laughs> right? He broke like the push period record that he set was $26,000. And the next year, instead of, you know, doing $30,000 or $35,000, he did $69,000. <laughs> so he went from twenty-six to sixty-nine. right? It's a total, it's not just beating a record. It's a total paradigm shift. Exactly. And you have to think so far outside the box or what's possible or what's been done before. And you have to think different. And I remember what John did that had never really been done before. 
is we were out in the Bay Area and he started selling bulk orders to CEOs, right? So it wasn't just thinking, how can I be a little bit better than the next person? It was, how can I approach my work in such a way that I can add so much value for such a large amount of people, not just one household at a time, right? But that I can absolutely transcend what's been done before. And so on the micro, it was selling $4,000 pocket knife orders when we were selling you know, $500 kitchen knife set orders. And no housewife was gonna buy $4,000 worth of you know, knives for their kitchen. There just wasn't enough. So that was the micro. And then the macro, of course, was him setting these huge goals, like that push period goal to break this all-time record in a, you know, in a way that was unrecognizable. And same thing, when he broke the annual record, the record, the year that John attempted to break the record, it was $151,000 or $153,000 for the year. So if you were to go for you know, $160,000, $170,000, that would have been something that had never been done before in the 50-year history of the company. John goes from one fifty to two hundred and sixty three thousand dollars, right? It's just it's just a completely outside the box way of approaching goals. And I've taken that since then. And there have been a lot of goals, including one of my years in Cutco, where I've set many, many years, I've set the goal to double my output, double my results, or double my income, right? So not just increase it by 10, 20, 30 percent. How do I increase it by one hundred percent? And I really can credit John to the inspiration for, for thinking that big and not outside the box. Uh, I'm impressed that you remember these numbers and I do. You're precise with everything you just said right there. And in that push period where John did $69,000, he sold seven orders over 3,500. I remember that. And it was, it, this is back when the homemaker set was about 800 bucks. So like you said, he was selling big bulk orders, gift orders, doing stuff that didn't exist back then. And I remember, by the way, John had a line that he would teach, which was, if you help me, I'll help you. He would describe his goals to the customers. And then he would say, if you help me, I'll help you. And the customer's like, what do you mean? And, and John would explain, I will help you get the very best deal on this This everything you want right now. And this is what it will do for you. And, you know, he would explain that to the customer and the customer would feel they were being served, even though they were helping John by buying this big order, they were the ones getting helped because they were buying something they wanted anyway, that was going to help them anyway. If they're buying gifts, they're spending money they were going to spend anyway, but they would just do it all now on Cutco and be able to, you know, distribute that to, to their clients or to their employees or whoever it might be. And this is something that exists in Cutco now at a very high level, but didn't exist back then. And John was a pioneer of so many of these sort of big ideas. And I do just want to interject for anyone listening that John was 17 when he started doing this. Like <laughs> That's what's crazy. It's like he was the Doogie Hauser of, uh, of Cutco sales, right? Just a prodigy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Can I say something, Dan, about what Hal just shared? I, yeah, I please. Would love to. So yeah, Hal, I got to say, buddy, I am a bit surprised at your memory on this one. I was just uh, going to say my brain damage excuse went out the window. No, numbers yeah. is the only thing that this brain remembers. You just gave everything away, buddy. You can't <laughs> use that card anymore. Uh, when I was in uh, eighth grade or the year between yeah, eighth grade and freshman in high school, uh, for some reason, my parents enrolled me in some sort of summer school 
course. I, I legitimately don't remember why I was in this. I think other kids were, and there was peer pressure to keep up. And anyways, they sent me to a course on speed reading because all the parents were convinced if you can help your kids learn how to consume more information, it'll, that's like a transcendent universal skill. That's a good idea. The first book that they had us use to practice speed reading was a book by the title of The Magic of Thinking Big. Mm. And that was the first time in my life that I had been directly introduced to this idea of thinking big. I don't know if I consciously did anything with that idea for the next three years. And then Dan, when I met you, you know, this was something you taught. You used to guide me through visualizations. And so what Hal just picked up on was something that, Dan, you had institutionalized in how you led people decades before you met me, because you're like hundreds of years old, Dan. <laughs> and, Dan, you used to guide me through guided visualizations. And that was where I learned the power of what all of us can unlock. That wasn't a skill reserved for me. And how you I love how you said that, both thinking big on the macro and the micro, because what I discovered through initially you introducing me, Dan, and then continuing to learn about how all this works from others is that you know the degree to which I can figure out how to consciously invite myself to see what I want in my life and to feel it and to experience it vividly, but in the texture of the present moment, there's something to that. It's also a really easy thing to say, sitting here chatting with a couple of my best buddies, but then really hard to do when we're back to real life and we're parenting and working and we're in the demands we're facing exceed our resources. And so we get reactive and stressed. And then we go not just minutes or hours, but days or weeks, and we forget about these visions. So it's easy to say, I think harder to do, but that was where I learned the power of seeing the future that we want to bring alive, feeling it. You taught me, Dan, to feel it. You taught me to embody it, not just write about it, not just talk a little bit about it. You and I used to do skits. And if anyone's listening, maybe they've heard this story before, but this is a true story. We would do enactments of the end of a sales contest, and we would actually enact, not just talk about it, we would enact the moment that I was being recognized. To this day, I still don't know that I fully understand all the magic and the mystery of how that works, but it works. And there's one other thing that you pointed out, Hal, about that's really tactical. And anybody who's an entrepreneur, I think this was a lesson that totally opened up universes for me. And it was realizing that some of the other reps were out there selling knives. And I had something that clicked that said, well, that's their identity, but I don't want that to be mine. I want my identity to be, I sell knife sets. And it's the limitation of our language that often limits our lives in every other way. And it was like, all I have to do is just change my identity. And then another lesson came on top of that, which was, I realized really quickly, I can't sell something unless I can see it. What do I mean by that? I can't sell it unless I can see what it looks like to describe it. I can see what it looks like for the customer and why they would even buy it. I, can't, I can only sell something to the degree that I can cast a vision for somebody else as to why it's totally rational for them to consider buying that. And so I just worked backwards and said, why would it make sense for somebody to buy all this stuff? And I started constructing new stories and new identities around what I sell, why, and why someone should consider buying all this stuff. But all that is, I think, connected to 
seeing a different possibility. So how I appreciate you bringing me back to that. It's fun. Yeah, I love that, John. That was so good. Starting with the question of what do you want in your life, right? Not just what do I think is possible, right? But what do you want? And, and if you begin with that question of what do you want, oftentimes it's easy to work backwards from that point to where we are now to be able to create a path to getting there. And then the envisioning part that you shared is so key because what that does, it, it gives you the feeling of what it will be like to actually be in that moment. And that creates a lot higher motivation now to get there because you actually know what it's going to be like when you get there. And so I'm reminded of the Stephen Coveyism where he says, all things are created twice. The physical creation follows the mental creation. And once you've gone through it in your mind, it's easier to be able to actually create it in real life. So that, yeah. was, that was great, John. Yeah. And it gives us a sense of, it gives us that purpose or that meaning that people often say they can't seem to find. We don't find it. We create it, right? And we create it through how vividly and emotionally and holistically we imagine a new and different future. And if you don't like the one you're imagining, change the imagination, see something different, reconnect to that childlike curiosity until you see something that brings you alive. And then that reignites that sense of purpose to keep you wanting to go for it. Exactly. Great stuff. How about since those early days, you guys, you have both been two of the most amazing students of life that I've ever known. And you're both also, you're teaching so many people all throughout the world, you know, about leadership, about daily personal development, just how to live a more fulfilling life. You've learned so many things. If you were to try to dissect a lesson or two that really stands out in your mind that our listeners could benefit from, what would it be? I think for me, and this really started in 2020. I might have mentioned this earlier. I don't, here's the brain damage, but I, you know, asking myself, what should I be focusing on? And realizing that when we focus on things that are out of our control, we feel out of control. And that causes anxiety and depression and fear, not optimal states. And in the last, you know, couple of years, we've focused so much on things that are out of our control because so much that was out of our control from lockdowns or restrictions or you know viruses all these things that are were being bombarded with all the time and and that all of a sudden took the collective consciousness to a place of focus hyper focusing on things that we can't control and then the collective became anxious depressed and fearful and so in early 2020 I asked myself well what can I control and it just came back to me that's it only thing I can control is me. And then I thought, well, what do I want? What do we ultimately want? And I think that if we all look at what do we want, it's, it's really fundamentally, we want to feel good. At, at the simplest level, everything that we do is to generate some sort of feeling that we're moving towards. I'm going to eat this food because mm, I love this food. It makes me feel really good. I'm going to watch this movie because it makes me feel really good. I'm going to reach this goal because if I reach that goal, I'll feel really good. And so when you realize that feeling good is the end game, then you go, okay, well, how can I feel good no matter what's going on, no matter what's going on in this world? And so I labeled it for me, and this is actually a term I, I think I learned from Michael Singer in his book, The Untethered Soul, and it's called inner freedom. 
And for me, I define inner freedom as our ability to choose how we experience every moment of our life, regardless of what's going on in our life. We get to choose. I don't think there's much more of, in terms of the context of a a valuable lesson, for me, it's to be able to choose how I experience life. Because if you can choose to enjoy every moment, you kind of win. But if all you learn how to do is reach your goals and, and, and accumulate wealth and material things, but you didn't learn how to actually be fully present to the miracle that you're living in every moment, you kind of lost, right? And, and of course, achieving goals, moving forward, progressing, creating results, it's all part of it. But to me, if I had to argue which was the most important, for me, it's been learning how to truly enjoy every moment of my life. And it goes back to the lesson that John that you had mentioned about being able to just accept your results as they are and for me it's something i actually learned in my cutco sales training called the 5 minute rule which i think dan you've probably taught this to many reps it says it's okay to be negative when something goes wrong but not for more than 5 minutes and i was literally taught by my original manager Jesse Levine when something goes wrong when you have a no sale or a, a customer's rude to you or your phone session doesn't go like you want or you don't reach your goal You set your timer for five minutes and you get five minutes to feel all of your emotions fully. Feel the anger, the hurt, the sadness, the disappointment, bitch, moan, complain, cry, punch a wall, whatever you got to do, feel it fully so you don't suppress it. And when the five minute timer goes off, you say three very powerful but paradigm shifting words. You say, can't change it. Can't change it. You acknowledge, I can't change what happened five minutes ago. So there's no value in wishing it were different. There's no value in resisting my reality. There's no value in continuing to feel sad and angry and depressed. It's been five minutes. I got to feel the feelings. It's time to accept my life exactly as it is, unconditionally. And now I have freedom from the emotional pain that I was generating by resisting reality. Once I accept it, I now have total freedom to go to that question, what do I want? What can I do to create it? Because I have a clean slate. I'm not being tied down by what happened five minutes ago or five months ago or five years ago. Some of us are suffering over things that happened decades ago, right? When we were children because they weren't fair and we didn't deserve it. And I am the way I am because of it. I've been there before with my cancer journey. I am the way I am because of this damn cancer and I can't change it. And it, it upsets me and it hurts me, but I can't change it. So there's no point in dwelling on it or wishing it were different. Accept life exactly as it is. And from that place of inner peace, you can choose to enjoy the moment at hand and create everything that you want for the future. So that to me has been the biggest lesson. What a profound and powerful lesson you just shared, Hal. And it's one of those that I think those of us in Vector have been exposed to people that have shared this mentality with us from our early days. I can remember my manager encouraging me to get into Tony Robbins. And, uh, and the, the quote from Tony Robbins that always stood out to me was, nothing in life has any meaning except the meaning we give it, mm. right? That uh, the Landmark Forum shared that we are meaning-making machines reading the book Man's Search for Meaning, which is about a guy who is in the most adverse of all possible circumstances in the Nazi death camps back in the 1940s and developed this sort of inner freedom that you described. 
If he could do that, if you could do that with cancer, then we can do that with any circumstance in our life. And it is a muscle that is built over time by handling the small challenges in the way that you just described. I always find it so incredibly like, it's so strange to me that people could get so upset for so long over such little things, right? Like some small thing will happen and somebody's upset for the whole day or two days or something, or even longer. It's like, come on, there's a better way to live, right? Like get over it, right? Don Miguel Ruiz in the Four Agreements calls it needless suffering that Mm. people put themselves through. And it's just so, such a powerful insight you shared, Hal, that I just think is such such an important thing for people to develop. So that was that was really great, really great. Yeah, good luck following that, John. <laughs> I was exactly. just going to try and hit rewind or bring in a sound effect or something. Oh, there you go. Well, if I could start by uh, acknowledging, you know, I've I've had an inside look, a front row seat uh, at Hal at your life for as like what is this twenty two years now and. I think what gives me a lot of joy to share with anybody listening to this is that I have seen what a lot of people don't see, which is who you are when no one's looking. And one of the things I admire is that all these things you just said, you know, there could be people listening who know you and a lot who don't. What I really admire is that you have always lived what you taught and you've never taught anything that you didn't live. And for me right now, that is one of several lessons that is very big in my life. And so it's just a pleasure, Hal, for me to hear you share that because it just brought me back. Like you've been living what you just shared over and over again. Life has given you multiple opportunities to refine these teachings through how you have faced adversity. And you have time and time again, used adversity to discover even more of who you are and who you want to be. And I think that's a beautiful gift for me and anyone who's had the privilege of witnessing it, or at least hear you talk about it today. So just wanted to acknowledge that. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So the question, Dan, around valuable lessons that stand out more than any other, well, there are so many for me. And the the interesting thing is my answer could be a little bit surprising especially for anyone who knows, like you guys do, the the heart of my work today is teaching teachers and coaches and leaders how to facilitate groups to unlock group potential. So we spend every day learning about how to design and lead in ways that allow groups to learn faster, to solve problems, to change their future, to do all sorts of fascinating things. And yet the learnings that have meant the most for me in the last few years are deeply personal. They're not so much about how we unlock at the scale of all. It's really at the more micro looking in the mirror level for me. And one thing that that struck me just going through my personal journey over the last few years is realizing that even with 20 plus years of intentional learning, personal development, whatever you want to call it, it's become really clear to me that there is such an extraordinary and important distinction between understanding an idea and actually knowing how to embody the idea. And it's become even more clear to me how dangerous it is for those of us who are so smart that when we hear something, 
we know it and we think that that's the end. And that's been a big uh, learning for me is realizing how many things my intellectual mind can understand, has understood, could turn around and travel the world and teach it. But it absolutely does not mean at all that I am embodying it. And when I think about what have I wanted to embody over the last few years, that whether or not I understood it, a lot of it relates to what Hal shared just from a different angle, which is you, you look at this moment in time that we live in and you know how you, you alluded to some things that are real and some people don't need any data or evidence for it. I will tell you there is that there has never been a time where people on a larger scale are facing more stress, more doubt, and more of the types of emotions that are devastating, even tragic, if we don't figure out how to deal with them individually and collectively. It's a, it's a real thing. Our company does a lot of work in the mental health space. And I hesitate to say too much because it's frankly terrifying. But if we're not willing to meet the world where it's at in a conversation like this, then we're not going to be who we need to be for ourselves and each other. So for me, even though the core of what we teach is facilitation, we've been saying for years that great facilitators at the end of the day who they are in front of a group matters as much as all the skills that they develop. In fact, we have some dear friends at an organization known as the HeartMath Institute. For 40 years, they've been studying the science of the energetic field that we put out through what's going on inside of us. Three, 400 peer reviews, meta studies have measured this. It's not woo-woo stuff just because we all came from the West Coast. This is real science that says that when any of us shows up in front of a group of people, and Daniel Goleman, Annie McKee, Richard Boyatzis, I just happen to have it on my desk here, 25 some years ago, when they talked about the evidence for emotional intelligence, the evidence is there that whatever is going on inside of us sets an energetic field that is contagious and affects everybody else. So I've become so concerned with how do I figure out how to do these things that Hal says so eloquently, not just because everyone else in the world is facing that, but because I need it too. And, you know, at the core of it, what does that really mean? I think for me, the biggest lesson, Dan, has been the realization that when I'm facing challenges, that no part of me knows what to do or how I'm going to get through it. And I'm in these tough, tough moments, remembering that between stimulus and response, there's actually a gap. And that in order for me to learn how to find that gap and choose a new response, Hearing this conversation is not going to help me. What's going to help me is developing the practices, things like what Hal's been teaching for a long time about how we spend every minute of our mornings, just as an example, but it's the practices. We could talk about lifting weights. We will be no stronger. We can talk about meditation, strengthening our attention skills. We can talk about contemplative practices. We're not going to be any wiser. So for me, the biggest thing has been starting to add the kinds of practices in that Hal's been trying to tell me to add in for a long, long time. And realizing that every time I'm willing to practice slowing down, pausing, I can then eventually notice and then maybe choose a different response. And it's at that point that as I keep developing that skill, that I start to develop that muscle. So then in those darkest moments of doubt, I can notice it and then invite faith or belief 
or possibility. In those moments where I'm unconsciously asleep and I'm criticizing other people or myself, I can finally have the skill to pause and say, wait a minute, what I need right now is to be guided not by the voice of the inner critic, but by the voice of appreciation. Either voice can win, but they're going to create a different world for me. Or the voice of the victim, right? It's so easy for me. I'm really good at the victim to start thinking about other people, other situations, and how because of those things, something has been done to me, against me. But I've realized that if I develop the skill, I could find in that moment the voice of the creator, which helps me to realize I can either be a spectator or a player. And if I want to enter the field, I've got to develop the skills to be able to do that in these moments. Like I said 20 minutes ago, it's really easy and flippant, and it sounds nice in a podcast to say, hey, when things are going south, I got to remember that the world is not happening to me, it's happening for me. That's too easy to say. It's hard to say in those very difficult moments. So for me, Dan, the big lesson has been to keep doing the inner work, the hard work, the developmental work that when no one's watching helps me to build the skills so that when I'm facing challenges I've never faced, I can find compassion, I can find resilience, I can find creativity, I can wake up and I can reconnect with others instead of separate myself. I can self-actualize instead of continuing to feel like I'm just trying to survive, which is all easier to say than do. But those are the things that come up for me right now. Yeah. You know, our listeners are so lucky to be able to hear you share this, John. There's so much good in what you just said. And from the difference between understanding and embodying. And I will admit right now that like I've done a lot of self-analysis and introspection just in recent months and certainly over the last couple of years about this question. It's like, what am I, what do I know in my life is right, but I'm not embodying when I went to the last Front Row Dads retreat that I know you were at, Hal, the question, the key question that I was pondering as I was there with this group of high-performing fathers from around the world was, what do I most need to model or emulate for my children in order to be able to help them to develop into who I think they could be or to self-actualize their own lives? And it, it's just such a great thing for people to think about, right? Is like, what what do you know that you're not doing? And there's the, you, you talked about how the outside sort of mirrors the inside, right? There's this energetic field we give off. And that, that's so powerful as well to be able to think about, like, how am I coming off to the people around me? And I feel like there's been plenty of times during this last couple of years of, of uh, uncertainty and difficulty where I haven't been at my best. And that, what takes me through that sometimes is just it's study and practice and like digging in, getting exposed to good ideas, like getting reminders, this kind of a conversation. Those are the kind of things that have really helped me. But I think that we're all, we can all really learn a lot from what you shared right there during that part, John. That was great. Just felt like an, an appropriate moment for a sound effect. <laughs> What do you do when you're in those times, John, where you feel like, you know what, I'm not, I'm not at my A game right now. Mm. Breathe. (laughs) 
and then breathe again and then breathe again and then somewhere in there find my feet on the floor and remember that there's this grounding that's always been there. Some people consider gravity a spiritual force. (laughs) And then I remember not only the support that is underneath me that is given, that's there that I forget, but I look up and I remember that there is some higher source, some higher power. And then I meet in the middle, which is my heart, which is where there's more intelligence available than anywhere else in the human body. And then I keep breathing. And if I forget everything, it's typically to remember from that place to have compassion for myself and others. And both are necessary for either to exist, really. So that's the first thing that comes up. And then I forget all this and I yell at my kids. And then a few (laughs) minutes later, I try to remember it again. Yep. What about you, Hal? Do you have uh, any insight on how do you respond when you feel like you're not on your A game? So I think that what my affirmations of everything that I of everything that I do, I have, you know, my my miracle morning practice. The affirmations are the anchor because those are I think affirmations have kind of a bad rap. A lot of people, the old-fashioned affirmations where you just kind of pump yourself up and say, I am awesome. I am amazing. I am powerful. The kind of generic affirmations. I don't look at them that way. I look at an affirmation as simply a reminder of something that you either deem to be true or that you aspire to be true, which kind of one and the same. And so my affirmations in the simplest forms are just reminders. And I, I can't tell you how often... I'll be in a funk for whatever reason. I'll I'll be off track. I pull out my affirmations that I'm always editing and updating and crafting. And I'll be doing my miracle morning and I'll read an affirmation. And it could be in any area of my life. It could be, you know, my general affirmations that like focus my mindset and my belief in myself. Or there's affirmations that I have around my relationship with my wife and and how I experience her and how I show up for her. Whatever the area, whatever the affirmation, I read it and it completely reminds me, oh yeah. That's the truth that I'm committed to. That's what I'm committed to being. That's what I'm committed to doing. And just re- being reminded of that energizes me to do what John talked about, which is not just read it, but actually embody it. And when you affirm it every single day over and over and over and over and over again, you start to embody it unconsciously. And then if you drift away, it's much easier to, to get right back because the affirmation becomes kind of an anchor for your best self, if you will. Yeah, exactly. That was great. Good stuff. So, hey guys, we've just started a new year here. It's January of 2022 as we're recording this. And uh, you both teamed up to run an event called Best Year Ever Blueprint for many years. What could you offer our audience in terms of being able to have their best year in 2022? There's two answers I'll give to this, two ways to approach it. One is the, the paradigm by which you measure how good your year is, right? Whether it's a great year, it's your worst year, it's, you know. And so examining the criteria that you are using to measure the quality of your year before the year even starts. And there's a few different options. I think for most people, it's based on results, right? If I reached my goals, it was a great year. If I didn't reach my goals, it was a bad year. The problem with measuring it only on your results is that sometimes you can give it everything you have and you might not hit your goals. You might fall short. So you might be setting yourself up for, for failure. Uh, the other problem is 
you don't know if it's your best year ever until the year's over. So you got to wait all year long to know if you know you actually got where you wanted to go and the year turned out the way you were hoping. So the first way to measure your best year ever is based on your results or your goals. The second is based on what happens to you that's out of your control. And a lot of people go, you know, you ask, how was your year? And they go, oh, it was a terrible year. I lost my, my parent. I lost my mother. It was a terrible year. I got COVID and I was, it was a terrible year. I, was, I lost my job, right? All things that are totally out of their control. Or it was a great year. I won the lottery. It was a great year. I got a promotion. It was a great year. My kid got into this call, you know, just out of our control. And the third way, this is what I would invite everybody to go into this year with this approach is that your best year ever could be measured instead of on your results or what happens to you based on how you show up every single day. And again, it goes back to it's the only thing that's in your control, how you choose to show up. Look over the, the last year and maybe for some people, 2021 was your best year. Or maybe some it was your worst year. But even if it was a challenging year, did you show up with grace or did you show up with you know, the opposite? Did you show up with courage or with fear? So my invitation and my, my encouragement for everybody is to decide that, you know what, this will be the best year of my life because of how I will show up every single day. I will wake up in the morning. I will dedicate time to becoming, to my personal development, becoming the person that I need to be to create everything I want for my life. I'll put myself in a peak mental, emotional, and spiritual state first thing in the morning. And then I will bring that best version of myself to every activity throughout the day, to every relationship I engage in throughout the day. I will make every day of my life literally the best day of my life. Because that's how you have your best year ever is you string together the best day, day after day after day. And when a day presents challenges that are out of your control, or the results don't go your way, you accept it exactly as it is, and you show up with peace and grace and acceptance and optimism, and you proactively go make the next day a phenomenal day. So that's my first, first approach to the best year ever. And the second, I'd be, I think I'd, be, I'd really be inauthentic if I didn't share it. It's the miracle morning. For me, the miracle morning, and I already kind of touched on that, it's waking up every day with a morning ritual that enables you to put yourself in a peak physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual state and develop the skills and the mindset that you need to be able to show up at your best every single day. For me, the Miracle Morning, there's six practices. The SAVERS, in case someone's not familiar, just very quickly. Silent, it's an acronym. Silence. That's your meditation or your prayer time to get grounded, to get centered, to calm your nervous system, lower your cortisol levels. The A is for affirmations, which I talked about earlier. Affirm what you're committed to achieving, who you're committed to being to achieve those things. The V is visualization, which John touched on so eloquently like you taught him, Dan. Visualizing yourself, achieving the things you want to achieve, and then visualizing yourself showing up today in the way you need to show up to achieve those things. And, and it's not about seeing it, it's about feeling it. It's about using the vision to create an optimal emotional state within you so that that state compels you to do the things that you need to do to create the results that you want in your life. The E in savers is for exercise. My exercise in the morning, I do 100 jumping jacks and then I stretch for a few minutes, right? I, go to, I do a workout later, but that's just to get my blood and oxygen flowing to my brain and put myself in a peak state and get energized. The R in savers is for reading. That is your five or 10 pages of a book to learn something to implement that day. 
And the final S is for scribing, which is a fancy word for writing or journaling. And I just write down three things I'm grateful for. And then I look at my goals and my to-do list and I say, okay, of all the things on the to-do list, I got dozens of them. What are the three that will make the biggest impact in my life or business? I'm committed in writing to do those three things today in order of priority. And that morning ritual I can do in 30 minutes. I can do in 60 minutes. I can do in six minutes if I'm rushed. But that is my miracle morning. And that for me, for the last decade, has made the biggest impact in my life. And so again, those two things, really deciding that your best year ever is not just about the results or what happens this year. It's how you show up every single day, how you choose to show up, and then using your miracle morning to enable you to give you that space and time to be very clear and intentional about how you're going to show up. You combine those two strategies. That for me has been the key to a winning year. Love it, Hal. I can remember the great Jim Rohn teaching that a day is like a piece of the mosaic of our life. And you think of a mm. mosaic, it's a it's a made with all these different colored stones. It's a beautiful picture made with different colored stones. And you don't want to have a gray bland stone in the middle of this colorful picture. And just the idea that every day, having the best day today is how we have our best year ever. Like that's such a great concept and how you drive that through your morning routine. Just, it's a brilliant concept and I, I love that. It's excellent stuff. Thanks, buddy. John, John, what do you got? Best year ever. This brings me back, Hal, to the, the event. We did this for six years and you know thousands of people came through San Diego, California. Dan, you, you came and shared the stage and shared your wisdom on occasion. That was, uh, that was a really good time. And we so wisely knew that there was a pandemic coming. So <laughs> yeah, we right. ended the event December of 2019. Is that when it would? I mean, yeah, it was. Yeah. Can you believe that? Oh my gosh. Yeah. How thanks for what you shared. It's just enjoyable for me to listen. So I'll begin by just pointing something out. Our company, and you, I heard you allude to this earlier, Dan, that here at Exchange, we've celebrated extraordinary success since 2019. Our company has tripled since 2019 through the end of last year. And that's a, that's a blessing. That's a privilege. That's, that's a gift. And people often ask me, why? How? Right? This is a fascinating time to have that kind of growth. There's certainly luck, there's serendipity, there's some, some wisdom. And I want to point out something around why we grew, because it gets me to what I think is really important today. Part of it is luck that our core business as a company was teaching people how to facilitate groups. And what we didn't realize is that so many people in the world would discover that the ability to learn how to lead groups is all of a sudden more important when groups of all types need to figure out how to create more value together, whether it's solving problems or learning to help people individually or collectively, whatever it is. So a little bit of luck, a little bit of skill in doing what we did well. But it gets us to today. And I keep asking the question, what's going on in the world? So I'm going to zoom way out for just a sec. What's going on in the world? And what do I need to pay attention to at the largest scale that might influence what is important for how I show up on the smallest scale. This is a moment in time where even before the pandemic, our world was changing way faster than humans were equipped to deal with that change. Well, the last three years, if you look at so many different sources of challenge, there's a whole new hypothesis 
And that is that it's not just that the world is changing at one rate, which is exponential. And if anybody who thinks that's going to slow down or go back, that's a dangerous thought. And it's not just that the world is changing faster than humans can adapt to change, but there's a whole new distinction that's really significant. Some people don't want to hear this conversation, but it's also hard to ignore. And that is that the ability for us to adapt, that line might not be rising. It might actually be going down right now. Because of what? We're not going to try and explain that. I don't know that I can, but there's division, there's decline, there's disruptions of all types, spiritual, cultural, racial, environmental. These things aren't make-believe. Now, we can debate why they're happening, but you can't debate that they're happening. So now that brings us to this moment, anyone who's listening saying, well, so what's the best thing I can do? You know, I have a mentor, Dr. Margaret Wheatley. She wrote the first book showing the intersection of quantum physics and leadership back in 1992. Nobody had ever written a book like that, Leadership in the New Science. I was just with Meg last week for a week at her home in uh, Sundance, Utah, and just she was sharing with me when that book came out, it was absurd. And yet she was getting phone calls and became the whisperer to military generals to joining the Dalai Lama on stage to help us all understand what is this new way of understanding the world? A lot of people didn't get it. 25 years later, she published a book purposefully at that anniversary, 2017, called Who Do We Choose to Be? And in that book, she said, let me try again. And she said, let me show all of you the history of the rise and fall of all civilizations. Hal, you you weren't sure if we'd go here. I love this book. Let me show you the history. And we're not talking decades. We're not talking hundreds of years. We're talking tens of thousands when you even do anthropological research. And so she said, let me show you what happens when you look at with pinpoint accuracy, how every civilization rises and falls is every 10 generations, every six stages. And by the way, if you look at all the patterns and you look at today, it's impossible to debate that we were not necessarily in the exciting stage. So what does this have to do with having your best year ever? At a moment like right now, when, like you said, Hal, this is a really tough time for control freaks. We all wanna control, we all wanna know when's the pandemic gonna end. When can we get back to the way we used to do things? What if none of it is going to be like that, but it's like something that none of us understand? What's the role of leaders now? Maybe the role of leaders right now is to ask no question other than how can I be of service? Maybe that is the only question that matters. How can I, not what brings me alive, not what do I love, how can I be of service? Because maybe what the world needs is, in history, there's been different names for these folks. There was a Tibetan prophecy many, many generations ago about the Shambhala warrior, that in a dark time, a certain group of people would rise up, not because they believed they could fix everything, but because they wanted to do what was right. In another time, it was the Knights Templar. And each of these groups has their own controversial uh, story and mythology But the point is, every time we've gone into one of these dark nights as a civilization, there has been a select group of people who rose up to do what was right, not because they believed they could change the world. In fact, they usually believed they couldn't, but because they needed to keep the spirit of humanity alive through these dark times. So to me, the question for anybody to ask, and this is not to dismiss 
the kinds of habits that Hal just talked about, I think those are the kinds of habits that get us reconnected to what matters most. And along with that question, what matters most right now? How can I be of service? I think is an important question. And if I had to make this practical, because people always want to know, what do I do when I get off this episode? How can you be of service in the next conversation you show up to? Right? How can you be of service the next human being that you're eye to eye with? What if your next conversation held the seed of potential for your whole life to change or theirs? How importantly would you treat that moment? What if your next conversation could leave an emotional residue that maybe somebody would remember forever? What if your next conversation was a chance to embody your highest divine self? What if your next conversations invited whatever your purpose is to multiply, to expand because of how you choose to show up, just like Hal said? What if your next conversation created a new configuration of strengths, a new opportunity to create or collaborate with whoever you connect with? What if it spiraled into a cycle of giving and receiving that was exactly what somebody else needed or what you needed? What if your next conversation was everything? I think for me, that's a big part of my focus. Wherever I am, that's what matters. Who I'm with, that's who matters. And whatever we're doing, you know, right now, that's where I need to be. So that's what comes up for me, Dan. Brilliant insight, John. If people want to learn more about you or exchange, uh, how do they do that? They go to themiraclemorning.com. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, geez, I don't even know. I got to ask Hal how to do this marketing stuff these days. Exchange approach and just go to our website. And like I said earlier, our core business is teaching folks how to facilitate. We do that once a quarter. We're honored that we've had over a thousand people come through those trainings since the pandemic got here. We also deliver a, uh, a leadership training called Awakening Conscious Leadership. And Meg Wheatley, who I mentioned, is a a teaching member of that faculty, along with Raj Sisodia, the founder of the Conscious Capitalism Movement, Debbie Rosman, the CEO at the HeartMath Institute, amongst some other extraordinary teachers. And that whole teaching that we now do, Dan, was an accident. You know, we were doing that teaching to teach our facilitators how to develop the inner skill to be their best. And then now we're teaching it to the whole world. But people want to find us, xchangeapproach.com, or they can ask you and you can connect them to me. Sounds good. And, and Hal, what, uh, what are you hatching with the Miracle Morning community? MiracleMorning.com is where you can find all the things. And uh, we just launched the Miracle Morning app that we've been working on for almost a decade. Finally launched the app. And then uh, the biggest thing is the movie in the last uh, year or so, the Miracle Morning documentary came out. And uh, again, MiracleMorning.com, you can find everything there. But it's a 90-minute documentary about how Miracle Morning is changing millions of lives and, and how I almost lost mine and kind of the intersection between the two. Fantastic. Guys, this has been great. I appreciate you joining me for milestone episode number 300. As I said, yeah, you guys are both changing lives uh, in so many positive ways. And I admire you both so much and appreciate you being here for this. Thanks. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Dan. See you, Hal. All right, everyone. That was Hal Elrod and John Berghoff. I trust that you got a ton out of that conversation. Of course, uh, Hal's big insight on inner freedom and the ability to focus on what we can control in our lives, the idea of the five-minute rule and can't change it. These things are so powerful and they take practice for sure, particularly during the moments of big 
massive, difficult challenge, but they are all things that we can learn and cultivate in our life. It ties well with John's idea of understanding versus embodying, right? What are the things in your life that you know, but maybe you're not doing, maybe you're not executing on? I know, as I said, that I've had some deep introspection about this concept and this insight of like, what do I want to be emulating for my kids? What do I want to be modeling for the world as well that maybe I'm not doing or haven't been doing that I can come to terms with and implement in order to move my life forward and make my life better and more exemplary? I think that's some powerful stuff to be thinking about. Hey, Hal Elrod talks a lot about the Miracle Morning in episode number 156. He also shares a lot about his story, his Cutco story, his insights, and his most recent book, The Miracle Equation, in episode number four of the podcast. John Berghoff's story is told in episode number two. He jumped on the podcast with me for episode number 90, which is called Crisis Leadership Playbook. Right as the pandemic was beginning, I think that still applies today. And this is a great insight. And then John's probably signature episode here more recently was where he talks about creating connection and community in the Zoom era, how to use these virtual platforms more effectively in leading groups. That's one of the most popular episodes more recently in the podcast. John also interviews me in episode number 100. If you'd like to hear more of my story and more of the banter between me and John, take it back to episode number 100. Hope that you can check some of those out as well and that you enjoyed this one today with John and Hal. Thank you for supporting the podcast through 300 episodes. I appreciate it and uh, look forward to continuing to bring great guests to all of you here through what we're doing. So appreciate it. Thanks for supporting the podcast. Thanks for listening. If you got value from today's episode, please share it with others and consider rating or reviewing us on your podcast player. Subscribing to the podcast is free and ensures that future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. For access to guest bios, show notes, and other resources, visit changinglivespodcast.com. You can sign up there to receive valuable resources for free from people featured on the podcast. And to support our podcast sponsors, visit changinglivespodcast.com slash deals. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. We'll be back in a few days for our next story about changing lives. 